Good afternoon and welcome to the Belgium Business. I'm Kate Markland and today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by a fellow mixtosian therapist, Kevin Hunt. So good afternoon and welcome from sunny Cambridge, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And uh, sun all the shines in Cambridge. Yeah. It's got its own little ecosystem here. Not always, but regularly enough. So Kevin, you've just recently published a book called Paying the Ultimate Mentor. Um, what led to the inspiration behind writing the book? Yeah, good question. So I think one of the reasons for writing the book for me was, I think, for patients, there was almost too much to cover and too much to take in, in the clinical setting. And certainly within one, two, three appointments, it's very hard to kind of cover all the ground that needs to be covered or certainly the information that we were delivering to patients. It's not so simple to retain and digest. So I wanted a book that I will be able to also say some of the ideas that we're talking about here, if you want to explore them more, you know, you can do it in your own time in the book. Uh, but also I wanted, um, to change the narrative around, um, pain because a lot of people thinking around pain has been outdated really. And I needed to put that together in a tangible, um, form that I thought Liz, here, here is, here is my philosophy, if you will, on what pain means and what it does. So I, I use the opportunity of COVID to actually say, you know what, I've had this book in my head for many years now, I need to actually put pen to paper. So I guess I wanted it as a treatment tool and um, a treatment tool to help people digest some of the big concepts that we are trying to explore in their own time at their own pace. So backtracking, you don't sound like you're from Cambridge, Kevin. So what's been your physiotherapy journey that's got you to Cambridge and to this point of being so interested in pain specifically? So I'm from Sligo in the West of Ireland, uh, beautiful sunny Sligo. Sunshine's there too. And uh, I did my undergrad physio uh, degree in Dublin and I worked in a teaching hospital after, I, in fact, after I graduated, I worked in a, for the university itself, I was asked to do a, a research post there on movement analysis. Then I did a, my rotational journey in, uh, in, in a teaching hospital in Dublin. Uh, after that, I went off to Australia and I did the usual kind of, you know, traveling around, but as a physio out there or certainly traveling out there good opportunity to work in a different environment. So I started doing a little bit of work in private practice. I started doing some work in rehab hospitals, which uh, dealt with multiple traumas. So people who had lots of fractures, lots of injuries. Uh, so I learned quite a bit about uh, what the human body can deal with and, and cope with uh, when I was working there. Came back after my travels back to Ireland. I did some work in the hospital in, in Galway at that stage. And I also worked for Gaelic football, uh, looking after some of these sports people. So got more interested in the kind of professional sports side of thing. Uh, I met my, uh, good lady wife, uh, and she was a, um, just a new grad medic in the UK. So I decided we'd move over to the UK and I did a master's in sports medicine. I got involved in ice hockey when I was there, worked in, a, uh, in the ice hockey environment, which also taught me a lot about pain and what the body can endure and what people can uh, endure when their um, purpose and motivation is right. Uh, yeah. Just balls to work in, just these hardcore Irish sports like shinty and, and then the ice hockey. You yeah. uh, picked and the sports that 
But the most uh, informative sport for me, when I moved to Cambridge, I got involved in horse racing uh, in Newmarket. And I covered many race courses around, around the country from time to time. And that taught me that was my education on pain. Uh, so everything I'd, not to say that everything I'd learned at university or everything I'd learned in the kind of traditional format of, of teaching was unhelpful, but, but um, working in horse racing made me question what I knew about pain, what I'd been told about pain, what I'd been told about treatment and what I'd been told about what was possible when you're, when you're in pain. And horse racing taught me more about the human body than any other environment I'd been in, in before that point. So I um, set up a clinic in Cambridge and uh, we've been here now for well, no, nearly 20 years at this stage. And I guess as I was treating jockeys and I was also treating members of the general public in my own clinic, I started to be able to take a lot of the lessons I'd learned within horse racing and apply them to patients in their own day-to-day -day environments and challenge them on their pain and challenge them on their thinking. Right, Kevin, I'm sat in Cheltenham right now. So whilst I might not know a huge amount about horses and jockeys and racing, I do know that jockeys are a unique breed of people. What was so specific about the race, horse racing environment and uh, jockeys that stood out for you compared to the other sports that you'd worked in? Because, you know, ice hockey is not, and some of the Irish sports are not for the faint-hearted. No, but I mean, I guess the key thing with horse racing is that there's very little protection. At the end of the day, you're a jockey. These jockeys are all, I mean, you've got flat racing and you've got jump racing, which are two different disciplines. People like to, you know, compare them like football and rugby. But uh, ultimately you have, you're a, a human being on a 500 kilogram animal traveling at 440 miles an hour and you can be catapulted into the ground at high speeds. Horses trample on top of you. And you are very, very vulnerable as a human being in that situation. And you can sustain significant injuries, but also that you can do that and not be in a huge amount of pain after you get catapulted into the ground and trampled on makes you question, hang on a second, what, what is my understanding of pain? Uh, and jockeys are unique in the sense of uh, there really is no advantage to them being injured. They're self-employed people. They don't get um, paid if they're not working, typically. Uh, and therefore they're desperate to get back. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, so is every sports person. But if you've got the privilege, if you will, or the safety net of a guaranteed salary, whether you're playing or not playing, uh, the incentive to get back isn't as powerful or isn't as strong. So I saw jockeys ride with injuries that I wouldn't get out of bed with. And it made you kind of think, hang on, how is this even possible? You know, people who would ride with broken collarbones, people who would have wedge fractures that they were racing on within a matter of weeks, people who would have even broken ankles uh, that they would try and mask and hide and try and cheat the system to get back on a horse in order to do their job. So the jockeys are a particular breed that can endure injuries uh, because their context of where the injuries are happening is very unique. Any injury short of a paralysis is a good result for a jockey. So if they fall off a horse and they break an ankle, for them, that's not such a bad result. For the rest of us, it's catastrophic, uh, potentially, but for them, it's actually a win. And that makes you question, okay, what does pain really do? How does it work? And how can I, as a physio, help other people who maybe not riding racehorses around Cheltenham or around Aintree or around Newmarket, but who are riding their own race in life? How can I help them understand? 
And I think one of the things that I have an insight to, but you will have obviously much more understanding of, is it's not just the few minutes of the race that the jockey's having to, or choosing to pull themselves together and put themselves on the horse. There's a huge amount of travel and they're notorious for not eating well because they've got to make weight and smoking a lot and just not taking as much, um, I wouldn't say care of themselves, but that might not be the right word, as you or I might. Yeah, it's a brutal sport. It's, a br- it's brutal and, and you know, the demands on them are, are genuinely unrealistic. Uh, the weight management is unrealistic. The uh, travel is unrealistic. The hours, the pressures they're under, it's, it, is, it is intense and it is phenomenal. And like any industry or any sport, you'll get those who are better suited to it and can manage themselves better and who take um, all the control, the controllables that they can control in terms of their lifestyle and their diet and everything else. And there's those who struggle to do that and use ethical fading, if you will, to try and actually achieve those things, whether it be smoking for appetite suppression and stuff like that, even though they, you know, they intellectually might know that's not the best route to take. Um, but it's a tough game. It's a very, very tough game. The ones who are most successful generally are the one jump racing and flat are, are, are different in terms of their approaches and, and the nature of the characters that, that are in it. Um, but increasingly you see it's becoming more and more professional, more and more sports science um, related because they have to, you know, they have to do the necessary things within their health hexagon, as I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in due course, to enable them to perform. And I'm personally now much more interested in looking at the jockey's lifespan and their career beyond horse racing and trying to actually help them build a better health hexagon while they're actually uh, having to do what they're doing in an industry that is very demanding of their weight and all the rest. So when you were seeing these jockeys absolutely pushed to the limit, and like you're saying, getting back on a horse and traveling and doing whatever was needed where you or I would not be getting out of bed, thank you very much. And yes, please, we would like somebody to bring us tea and a bowl of porridge. Yeah. Um, it made you question everything that we are taught about pain, both as, I want to say, as students, as junior physicists, as senior physicists, just culturally what we are taught about pain. Sure. I mean, th- this is the thing where, uh, you know, uh, what, another reason for, for the book was that I, I got tired of answering the same questions, the same outdated narratives uh, around pain and back pain in particular. Uh, that I felt is I need to, I need to put this down in 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 a tangible format and be able to say to people if you really have some questions read this and then you might actually enlighten yourself uh, as opposed to the complexities of, of the pain. And um, but I definitely questioned it because you know when I went to university the the best model of pain was the Melzakam Wall pain gate theory and it doesn't stand up to scrutiny as it were. So when you can see people who are able to get on a horse with a broken ankle, you think, how is that even possible? We're told you shouldn't even be able to put weight on a broken ankle. So it just makes you question what it is we understand. Uh, and of course, as you start to look through that lens a bit deeper, you start to find the research and the evidence around it that goes, yeah, your scan isn't going to show you pain. It's going to show you anatomy, but it's not going to show you pain. And you can have changes on a scan. It doesn't mean they're responsible for your pain. But of course, if individuals only see the changes on the scan and assume that must mean I'm damaged, I'm broken, 
they stop doing things that are good for them. And then they turn their life into a painful experience. And we have a role, the duty of care to actually enable people to be able to say, hang on, I need to question this information I have received. And I need to question that information within the context of my own person and my own body. Uh, so racing, I think, allowed me to challenge my belief systems, my thinking, uh, because I had evidence in front of me every day of the week that, well, according to my education, you should not be able to do this. You should not be able to do that. And you, people can. Tell me about the orthopedic surgeons that work with jockeys. Um, so the, uh, I think you look at, when you, when you look at any element of the team, um, that are looking after any individual, whether that be a jockey or whether it be a, a person walking in off the streets, they all have a team of people, whether they're aware of it or not. So you have a GP, you might have a consultant specialist that you see, you might have your physio, your dentist, your personal trainer, your family, your internet. Um, the orthopedic surgeons, the way I kind of see a lot of that is they have a very specific role to play. So they have a very specific, you know, tip of the iceberg, if you will, pointy end of the, of the job. Uh, and they will have a situation where, you know what, all they're interested in is the, um, is the, is the surgery. They're only interested in, I need to repair your cruciate ligament. I need to pin your leg. I need to debride whatever. And as far as I do my job, then the job is done. And that's all well and good. Uh, so I think we can be, uh, as physios, we can be a slightly dismissive in a way of surgeons going, but you're not looking at the human, you're not looking at the individual. But also we have to think, well, that's not their job either. Their job is to do the pointy and the the 2% of people who do end up needing, you know, back surgery, let's say, as opposed to the 98% of people who don't need back surgery. So I think when we talk about surgeons or think about surgeons, they, we think, well, they have a specific role to play. Now they could be better educated at going, by the way, I'm going to do this, but you also need to consider some of the other stuff. And maybe you do need to consider going to um, seek out some of that information as well. Uh, but over the years, I was lucky to gather a team of surgeons who I trusted that had the best interests of the jockey at heart and who were items comfortable sending jockeys to see, to get those opinions and to get that input and to get that insight that I didn't have, that I needed, and to enable them to choose the right treatment for, for them. I think with a lot of sports people, jockeys in particular, if you say to a jockey, you can go with the conservative route on this ruptured Achilles tendon or this, you know, um, fairly stable fracture of your fibula as a simple example, or we can operate on it and we know the timelines and it'll follow this timeline. They'll take surgery almost every time because they want the, they want to control the controllables. So if they say, right, you pin my fibula and I'm back on the horse in four weeks. I'll take that as opposed to maybe back on a horse in four, six weeks. So of course they're going to want to see a surgeon and go and have the surgeon. Now, is that the best option for them in the long term of their whole life? They could have maybe had a good result conservatively, but that may not be important to them right here, right now. So surgeons have a role to play, a very important role to play in the right situation, the right circumstances, but they're interested in surgery. They're not interested in the bigger picture usually as much as we are. But tell me about this paradigm shift you started to have when you were observing that, hang on, pain clearly isn't what I've been told it is. Um, and it, it, people can perform and the human body can be incredibly resilient. 
Where did you go to find more information, more conversation, different perspectives, and start to piece together your model? Uh, once I suppose you're, you're questioning those things in your own mind, you start to see information everywhere, you know? So I, I read a lot anyway. I, I, I read every morning as part of it, my kind of own management of myself as it were, and I read relatively diverse, um, subject matter. So I read books on psychology. I read books on neuroanatomy. I read books on, um, you know, uh, things like addiction. So some of Gabor Mate's work, I'll read things like, um, you know, often patients here being in Cambridge, they do recommend some good resources and I'll read them and I'll go, actually, yeah, that resonates. That could be something that could be, uh, important information into, um, the health hexagon people's, people's well-being. So you start looking around for it. Obviously people like, um, Larvor Mosley, I think is, is, is quite good and entertaining and, and, you know, definitely helps to make things interesting and to put them in a digestible format. So there's one person who I suppose was. You thought, okay, that, that, that's important stuff. Um, but you look at slightly broader, further field, you know, look at the experiences of people, for instance, who have been getting a bit dark now, but who have been prisoners in concentration camps and, you know, that what they've had to endure, what they've had to put up with. And we see patients every day of the week who come in blaming the mattress for their back pain. And you think, man, you know, when you look at what the human body is capable of, is really the pillow and the mattress the source of the problem? What's happened here with Princess and the Pea when people who have been living in the most horrendous conditions humanly possible were able to still get a solid night's sleep in a concentration camp on the worst bed because they were so exhausted? And here we are in 2023, saying that the whatever the spring count on the mattress is the reason we've got it back. It can't be. It's, it's not that binary. So we need to ask deeper questions and bigger questions. And we need to help the patients themselves go, well, yeah, maybe it isn't the mattress. Maybe it isn't the pillow. Maybe there's a bit more to this pain experience than meets the eye. And we have a role there as physios to help them go, let's think a bit more. Right? Could you really hurt yourself getting out of bed? Really? You know, when you're doing burpees in the gym. So come on, let's think about what's going on in your life that might actually account for the pain getting out of bed in the morning. I want to ask, is central heating allowed on in your house or is that too much of a luxury? I know it's, it's, it's British July summer and all that, but it's, it's not on in July. Wonderful. Right. So tell me, Kevin, talk us through the, the summary of your book and what you determined the role of pain is and why it shows up in our lives. So the book is primarily about persistent pain and I persistent pain is that that goes beyond three months after we would expect pretty much tissue healing to have occurred, whether that be through a bone, ligament, you know, muscle, that type of stuff. Um, but if you have persistent pain that goes on for more than three months, pain makes messaging, the pain system becomes a bit more complicated, but pain is still trying to grab your attention. It's still trying to alert you that something needs to change. So what I'm trying to do in the book is say, okay. The pain is there for a reason, but it's not necessarily the reason that you think it's there for. And people like to put pain in a binary department. You know, it hurts, it's bad. It doesn't hurt, it's good. I wasn't in pain two minutes ago. I'm in pain now. The thing I must have done in the last two minutes is the reason I'm in pain. And what we're trying to say is actually that's not, that's not as, that's not how it works. It's not as simple as that. So I talked through the book about the pain pathway. We've got sensory data. 
which is the information coming from the tissues, how it moves, how strong it is. That's even sound. You know, you hear your joints click, that's sensory, that's a, and physios answer every day of the week, my joints click, is that, is that good or bad? Does that make noise? Um, so that sensory data has to go into the central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, and it has to get filtered through stored data. Stored data is everything we understand from past experience, from belief systems, from instinct, risk reward, hurt, harm. It comes into how our personality plays a role. Are we someone who's a perfectionist who sees every flaw as damage and danger? Are we naturally uh, anxious? Will we catastrophize? Have we got information that in our uh, environment, everyone we know has had a hip replacement, therefore we must be destined to the same fate. Uh, and the filtering of the stored data and these sensory messages that come through, they end up in the third element, which is predicted data. That's how the body behaves. That's the sensation we have. That's the, um, how the body defends, responds, speaks to us, if you will. So what we're trying to do is to explain, okay, this is how the pain pathway works, but along the pain pathway, there are various places where the messages can be filtered, interrupted, changed, and the sensitivity of those messages and the various synapses in the central nervous system are influenced by lifestyle factors. Primarily those lifestyle factors that we would see as pro-inflammatory that will affect the immune system that actually have impact on how our synapses between first and second order neurons in the spinal cord decide this is a message that needs to carry on. This is a message that not, does not need to carry on. And whether those messages get into then effectively a brain and how the brain filters it too. So the six elements of the health hexagon, uh, I believe do influence significantly how these messages get filtered, how they get relayed and how we interpret. And that hexagon involves diet, exercise, cognitive stimulus, emotional insight, and then the spiritual space, which is where we switch off, decompress, de-stress, relax, whatever it is. And to get our health hexagon in good order, we need something that can guide us towards that. And in my view, that's your pain pathway, your pain system. Because if you start living an unsustainable life, your pain is the bluntest of tools that will speak up and grab your attention. And we all know as physios that we tend to be, see people in pain, in stressful situations. And our job is to go, okay, the stresses and strains of your life are causing sensitivity of your pain system, but your pain system is trying to help you go, I need to make some changes to my health hexagon to actually improve my quality of life. And that's our job is to try and actually make sense of this relatively complex, yet at one level, simple system that goes, if you're getting persistent pain, it's trying to grab your attention. What is it trying to grab your attention from? Is it really the mattress? Is it really the pillow? Is it really bending and twisting as bad? Let's think about it a little bit deeper. And so the role of the physiotherapist, the pain is there as a guide to help you get rebalanced or recentered in, in the health hexagon. And the physio is there to be the guide, the fairy godmother, the, the, um, what word would you use to describe the role of the physio in this? 
I think we're a coach, really. I think I think we can become a bit of a, a, a coach, a, a pain mentor, or what, what you know. We're 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 just a, we're another. Um, there's many roles that I think you, you can play in this. I mean, number one, we, we're a clinician, and we've got some knowledge there to be able to go. You, you know, your disc hasn't slipped because they don't slip in and of themselves. Yes, they change shape, but they don't slip. You know that sort of start. So we have some clinical insight. I think as physios, we are in a we are in a relatively unique position, particularly those that in private practice, because we have time to spend with our patients. We have time to get to know that we have time to get to know what pushes their buttons. And we have time to actually explain things to them and be part of the conversation with them. So I think as a clinician, we are able to go, well, we have the clinical skills to evaluate whether this is something that we do need to escalate up the chain. Do we need to really be considering surgical intervention here or imaging to, to establish our diagnosis or management plan? Uh, do we need to get the help of other um, providers in the healthcare sector? So we have a role as a clinician. We have a role as an educator. We have a role as a sounding board. We have a role as somebody who can act in a degree of accountability. We have a role as a coach who can put a mirror up to people with narratives and who can actually question their narratives. Uh, but above all, we're trying to help people enable themselves to look after their future self, enable themselves to actually be able to question what is it my body is trying to tell me and what changes do I need to make? And once you start having those conversations with patients, they kind of go, oh yeah, I can see the inconsistency in my pain narrative. I can see that it doesn't always make sense. And I can see that I need to update my store data. Uh, so we have many hats, but I do still think they all fall under the, if you will, the scope of practice of the physio. Uh, but we have many hats that delivering that care now is multifactorial. And we will have points uh, where we do need to ask for extra help because some individuals will have more complex needs than we can cope with. But if we can say you may need to access this service as part of your team to manage you, just like an athlete, you know, we won't be experts in nutrition, but we'd have a nutritionist to help the jockeys figure out their, their plans, you know. This is exactly what I'm hearing you describing, Kevin, that I'm very aware that in professional sport, physios are quite often now stepping in and taking the role of head of medical services. You see the jobs advertised, which requires us to be in a very assertive, confident position. But actually, as you're describing, of all health professionals, we are probably best suited to do that because surgeries are already needed, prescriptions aren't needed. We have the time and we have a much we have a very rounded uh, picture and what you're describing is bring that position, that sort of confidence, that professional status almost into the real world, not just into elite sports. Bring it into the, your community. It's the. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time as physios. We've be, we've been in that space for a long time, but that space hasn't necessarily been um, recognised to its full potential. But it is now because uh, people are starting to see that, okay, the classic um, Cartesian model of, of medicine isn't robust enough and it's not as simple as here's a medication, here's a scan, here's an operation. And people want to be empowered to manage themselves. I, I say to patients in here all the time, you know, there's come in with a, whatever it is, a back pain, neck pain, sciatica, whatever. And, you know, a couple of appointments in, I'll go, you know, I'm not really interested in the 
six to 12 weeks it's going to take us to get you out of pain with that sciatic problem. But I am interested in your future you. I am interested in your eight-year-old self. And I want us to use this now as an opportunity to empower you to be independent for as long as you can be. And I think most people are of the mindset where they're thinking, yeah, I do want to be independent for as long as I can be because I can't rely on the health service to, uh, to do that for me. I can't, I don't want to end up in a, a, a nursing home or a care home if I can avoid it. And so I will do what I can do. And if it keeps me out of a care home for an extra six months or 12 months, that's a good investment in my, in my time. But to do that, there's so much information out there. You know, be a vegan and that solves all your problems. Oh, do transcendental meditation. That solves all your problems. Oh, no, 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 you do, do the five, two diet. No, 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 do push-ups. No, 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 do squats. There's so much information out there that it gets confusing for people. And what I think the health hexagon does is it goes, it gives you a template to say these six things really matter. What you need, the formula for you exactly is going to be different to the formula for me. It's going to be different to the formula for somebody else. And actually the formula, the specifics of the health hexagon uh, in your life will be different at different stages of your life. But you will always need these six elements. So let's start thinking along those lines. Let's start paying attention to those things. And if you go off track, your pain's going to flare up. If you are on track, you're less likely to have those pain flare-ups. So let's use pain as a, as, a, as a guiding principle, as a guiding tool. But yes, you might need medication at some point in your life. But it's, but it, and I don't fall into the, it's all bad medicine, it's all good medicine, because I think there's a place for all of it. And I think we have to be very careful that we don't go too far into the other extreme of going, never, never trust any other health professional in your whole life, you know, here, be a vegan and that's everything. I think that's dangerous. But I do think there is pendulum can swing too far in, in, in each direction. And we have to get a little bit of uh, common sense and a little bit of balance. But I think people are um, now increasingly going, what can I do to enable myself? Give me some guidance, give me some points in the right direction, give me your expertise and I'll take it on board and decide. And I'd like to think the book is a powerful um, introduction to all of that. And it gives people a way of thinking that goes, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use now pain maybe as a, as a tool to guide me up to a point. And, but I'm also going to use the hexagon as a way of templating the things I need to do. What's your vision for the health hexagon? How far would you like it to reach? Uh, that's, uh, I, 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 one of the, one of the best books, uh, I read, well, best books I read recently, but a book I read recently, um, by Rick Rubin, the music producer, and it's about the act of creativity. And it's the first book I've read from start to finish that when I finished the last page, I went back and read the first page again and went all the way through it. Cause I was like, there's, there's, I need to pay a little bit more attention to this book and, and the little bits it gives me. Well, one of the things he says in there is that when you do something creative and ultimately writing a book is a creative process, it's not up to you what happens to it after you, after that. It, it's, it's not, you, you don't control any of that. It's not up to you. So you do your thing, you set it out into the world and you let it be what it'll be. So part of me goes, well, I don't have any control over that reach. So I do, you know, do I, do I really need to give it any attention? Of course, I'd like it to help people. Of course, I'd like it to shift people's thinking. 
Um, in terms of reach, volume, numbers, how many people read, how many people buy, that, that's, you know, that's not something I can control or, or um, you know, but ultimately I'd like it to reach many people as possible to be able to go, I need to shift how I viewed things. Because I think as physios particularly, we hear a lot of the same thing again and again and again and again and again. And we, we would like to be able to change people's thinking. You're not as damaged as you think you are. You're not as broken as you think you are. Let's think about what pain is trying to tell you. So as many people as need the message. I think what I'm also hearing is that you're noticing that the, the general population are, have got savvy in terms of the condition of the health medical industry and are starting to request and drive as purchasers of the service what they would like to see. And then you're describing that you're very much observing they would like help to become autonomous or to have more control over their health and to be less passive and less dependent. And what I'm also understanding is that the Health Hexagon really gives practitioners a framework in which they can start opening up conversation because many practitioners would like to open up conversation about a wider sphere of people's lives, but don't know how to go about it. And perhaps the Health Hexagon is a tool that practitioners can use to, to support that. Yeah, I think so. Hopefully, I think so. And, and you know, I, I hear from patients all the time and say, well, you know, other physios aren't doing this. Other physios aren't um, talking to me about this stuff. And why aren't they talking to me about this? And I think... Um, yeah, I think there's a bit of fear about even asking these questions or having these conversations. But I do think as physios, we once we understand the principles behind it, once we understand the um, the science behind us, then I think we're more comfortable uh, having those conversations. Uh, I had a person who who, uh, who 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 left a comment on the on the book uh, a little while back who was saying. Um, they said uh, they'd been a patient here some years ago, maybe five, six more years ago. I don't know how long. And they said that, uh, you know, their treatment really improved the quality of life, which is fantastic. But they said, you know, I was looking forward to this book because I now know it's not a magic trick, uh, that the treatment itself wasn't a magic trick. Uh, now they did really well with treatment and they'd again, you know, really improved their quality of life. And I've known I've changed their future selves and the direction they work happily in it. Uh, but the fact that they go, but now I understand how it works. And I, and, and I think for me, that's quite important because I think a lot of physios, we, we're not always able to articulate why we're doing the things we're doing for our patients, why we're making the suggestions we're making, why we need to do, why they need to make some of the changes we're asking them to make. And I think that the book has put that into a digestible format, not only for the patient, but for, for the clinician as well to help them kind of go, no, these are the science here, or there's evidence here, or there's um, research here, but also there's the human being, which is at the end of all of this. And we need to consider that hexagon that, and how it's impacting on their life and their, um, and their experiences. So hopefully, yes, the clinicians will get more confident in being able to address those things. There was a GP into me recently for treatment and they said, you know, you're so much firmer with your patients than I am, uh, because I was quite firm with them. I felt that's the approach they needed. And, uh, I said, yes, but you've got to understand that I need you to make these changes for yourself or else 
I'm a bad physio. You know, you're going to go away and you're going to be treating patients in your surgery. And you're, if you don't get the result that uh, I need you to get, you're going to be telling all your patients, physio's a waste of time, go and see some quack down the road. So I need you to get better. But the only way you can get better is if you do these things that we need you to do and appreciate that the stresses you're under and the hexagon you're currently living is causing your neck pain, not the posture of your desk, not the posture of your chair, you know, and the fact that you're an overstretched NHS GP trying to be all things to all people, maybe that's contributing to your neck pain. So let's get your hexagon in order. So sometimes we have to be firm, but we can't be firm unless we believe in what we're doing. And if we don't believe in what we're doing because we don't have the knowledge to back it up, then we need that first of all. So hopefully the book gives that, I can see now the evidence, I can trust, I can, I can be an advocate for that and I can go and change the future. Now I'm going to just share with you, I worked in the Netherlands for a little while and I remember in the first First day, I think it was, not even the first week, saying to the person that was mentoring me, you can't speak to patients like that. Because he was so, like, what, so Dutch? Just so direct. Yeah. Uh, wow, I learned a lot in that three months of just saying it as it is. And I often say to people, please, just be more Dutch. And you clearly are. Well, I think there's the, I don't know. I mean, we, we have to try and treat the person in front of us. We have to learn with them what motivates them, what drives them, all of that. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes you have to go straight to the point. Sometimes you have to pull that out of them. You know, it's not simple. And, and that's something I'm always trying to work on. I'm always trying to figure out what's the best way to get the penny to drop here. Uh, what's the best way to motivate this person? What's, what do they need from me that I can give them? Um, and it's not simple, but sometimes, yeah, we do need to be. We do need to be kind of very clear. Do you understand uh, what you are risking here? Do you understand that the pursuit of this thing, i.e. grow your business, sell it, get it on the stock exchange, that doesn't fix anything. In fact, it's probably going to cause you more problems than it fixes because just having a billion pounds in the bank, and I've treated people with a billion pounds in the bank, doesn't mean you are bulletproof to the health concerns that come down the line. Uh, therefore, I need you to understand that because you have decided that making fortune fixes everything and it doesn't because people are people. They have the same six issues, whether they have a billion pounds in the bank or whether they have one pound or no bank account. The principles are exactly the same. Uh, so let's, let's, let's get serious about what we're really treating. Are we treating sciatica or are we treating the 80 year old person, you know, that happens to be 40 now. And, and what is the outcome worth? So if we rewind back to the beginning, you mentioned that one of the inspirations for writing the book was just, you're so conscious of the information overload that can be required, but you can't quite distribute in a session. You, you know, there's a lot of information for somebody to take in, a new environment, what you're processing is, what the diary is, all sorts of things to take in, regardless of even thinking about what the problem is that came in the first place. And so we're all being very, very guilty of information overload and not recognizing quite what an issue that is for the client wanting to give them everything in a few half hours. Yeah. Um, has producing a book really enabled you to slow down 
the amount of information you provide a person at any one time. I, I'm working on that myself, you know, to try and go, okay, constantly fine tuning your, your, um, your approach to things, trying to read the person in the room. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a very academic city and I like, uh, you know, there are a lot of people here who do, who do like the information and can digest it pretty quickly and pretty well. I've gotten much better at actually going, you know, the purpose of this appointment is for me to see what's going on and explain the plan and not try and jump in and give them treatment and give them all of those things in, 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 in the first, uh, in the first session as it were. So I've got better at going, here's what I think we need to use our time for today. Here's the purpose of this appointment. And, and then, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a information gathering exercise a lot of the time. So I, I think I'm getting better as trying to get key points across early, uh, but also not to overwhelm people. But it's nice also to have a tool that goes, listen, I know it's a lot of information to take on, um, but we've covered again and we'll, we'll go into it a bit deeper and we'll go into it a bit further. Um, I've, I'm, I'm reluctant to go, oh, by the way, there's a book in reception, go get that and come back to me the next appointment. But, you know, in time that might also become a case of, listen, let's just take them, go away and read it and, and come back to me. And, you know, that, that might be part of it as well. And so I'm conscious of information overload. But it's surprising how much information people can take on. I guess what we have to do is go, oh, that's the, that's the guiding principles. Don't worry. You don't need to remember this stuff. We're going to use your treatment to guide you through this stuff. And that gives them permission to go, okay, I don't need to remember every detail today, but at least I had my, um, thinking, uh, ignited, let's say. Yeah. And what you're also describing very much is an awareness of a pain, because that's usually why somebody contacts a physio clinic, a pain has brought you here. But what we're actually addressing is where you are when you're 80. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. that's not necessarily done in four half hour sessions. I mean, I listen sometimes to clinicians who are so proud of how little they can see somebody. But I question, has that actually stopped that person's revolving door? Have you actually created the lifestyle transformation that they are seeking in? four sessions because I can't see that that's possible. Yeah, I think it's physically we, we have to work on those things. We have to start to think what 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 is what is my purpose? You know, what what am I doing as a physio? And and um and it's all too easy to means test. It's all too easy to kind of and, and I think for a lot of that is physicians who don't value themselves. They don't value what it is they're doing. And I think if you're able to kind of go, hang on, you know, if you were to see me, what could I do? What could we achieve together as a physio and the patient? What could we achieve together? If I had 12 hours, you know, as opposed to two hours with you. And um, now, yeah, someone who comes in for a physio appointment isn't necessarily going to go, yeah, fantastic. I'll, 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 I'll have 12 hours with you for my freshly sprained ankle because it might not be that high on the priority list. But at least if we're able to kind of go, there's a lot going on with this person's life, you know, and maybe the reason they sprained their ankle is, you know, because they're actually addicted to exercise and, you know, they were reusing exercise as a tool to de-stress because their life is complex and all that kind of stuff. And the sprained ankle is, is, is just a reflection of all of that. Maybe we could, you know, use the sprained ankle as a, you know, as, as a gateway into other things to really improve that person's understanding of their health, their well-being, their future selves and all that. Um, but yeah, I think you're totally right. I think as physios, there can be this idea of 
treat them, get them out of pain and don't over treat them because a lot of the insurance industry has conditioned people to think that way, hasn't it? You know, Boopa or whoever kind of like you can do four or five and that's it. And you're a bad physio if you do any more and you think, well, actually you're not even physio if you don't address the mechanism of injury and the mechanism of injury is not, you know, I slept wrong. The mechanism of injury is much more complicated. Um, so yeah, we, we, we are a profession that is hopefully learning to value ourselves a little bit more in being able to go, we are healthcare providers and healthcare covers the lifespan of the person. It's not just their bad, bad, bad neck or whatever it is. And not everybody wants to jump on board with that straight away, you know, because people, it doesn't, it's not necessarily as high on the priority list as we would like it to be, but we see it frequently where we can explain some of the stuff we're trying to help people with and they may not go for it now but they come back in six months time when they're like i was thinking about the stuff you're on but i'd like to explore that a bit more please you know so but they come because they're in pain and when we can deal with some of that early on does the motivation drop but that's our job to help educate them it's our job to help them find value in all of that and um we're working on getting better and better and better at helping people do that. Yeah, so we have the opportunity to be a catalyst is what you're describing and uh, a catalyst for a healthier elderly generation. So we might, I might still be on a windsurf board when I'm 80 if I listen to your advice, Kevin. And you might, you might. I don't know where that fits in your hexagon. Well, you know, you aim for it. You aim for it and you see, you see where it gets you. Oh, wonderful. Can you just wrap up the, the conversation in a sentence or two, Kevin, for the listener? In a sentence or two, I think I, I like to see pain as the solution rather than the problem. I think we have to be mindful of mechanism of injury. So when the, you know, that pain, is it really a reliable mechanism of injury? Does it really make sense that you have, uh, you know, hurt your back by bending and twisting? when you are running 5k the other day. And if you can start ask, ans asking those questions of yourself, then you start to dig a little bit deeper into the role of pain. Pain is a mentor. It's there to guide us to a better solution, a more sustainable quality of life for ourselves, if we're willing to listen to it. So ask yourself, what is your pain trying to tell you? And the pain is the solution. Thank you very much for your time today, Kevin. Thank you, Case. Thank you very much indeed.